Well, it's so good to be here. I've got to say, um, it's an incredible joy to be at Granville on these Sunday mornings. Uh, this place and this community um, shaped me, and I'm so very thankful for this community. Um, one of the other places that shaped me, um, that formed me over a number of years, was a camp up the coast called Malibu. It's run by Young Life, and I spent many summers up there, uh, all of my summers during college years, uh, three of them in the camp kitchen, uh, one of them being the head cook when I was 21, if you can imagine, and trusting a 21-year-old with, uh, and uh, four other college-age students, and then four other high school students to feed some 400-plus people, but Young Life did, and it was an amazing, amazing uh, time, and incredibly formative. But I think back to um, one day, I uh, had the opportunity to have lunch with a friend up there. Uh, we had been on summer staff at Malibu the year before. He had gone on to be involved with a camping program down the inlet called Malibu Beyond. And he was in camp for the day. I had lunch off. And so we decided we were going to have lunch together. And we weren't going to do it in the hustle and bustle of the dining hall. But we were going to go up to the cook shack and just have quiet time together. So I got the whole tray of lunch, which was uh, beautiful grilled cheese sandwiches and uh, bright red uh, tomato soup and uh, bright uh, purple uh, uh, Kool-Aid, big picture of it, and then uh, this bright lime green jello with the cookie on top. So you're getting the colors. Um, and I carried the tray, and uh, Jeff was willing to help, but I said, you know, it's fine. I can do it. I, I'm fine. Now, the other bit of detail you need to know is that in the kitchen in those days, way back when, we kind of prided ourselves in wearing the kitchen whites. So we'd all gone to... Uh, the army surplus and bought these uh, navy, white navy pants, which ballooned out about this far, had very tight bum, and then we wore a white shirt and this beautiful white apron, and we looked pristine and beautiful, and so I was wearing all of that, carrying this tray, up or down through camp and then up over the rocks where uh, there used to be the basketball court and then just on the other side was the cook shack. And, um, and so I just said, We're, I'm fine. I've, I know these rocks. I've been up here in the dark. I know how to get here. I'm fine. You can tell where this is going. And uh, so I was carrying the tray and we got almost to the door of the cook shack and I miss the step. And the whole tray went up and down my front, and my beautiful pristine whites became splotched with red and purple and lime green jello. And so as I went into the cook shack to get cleaned up, Jeff went back and got another tray load of everything, and he did totally fine just walking up uh, by himself. And uh, we had a nice lunch eventually, but it's uh, a very embarrassing moment. Uh, my pride was bruised, and my clothes were soiled which becomes a bit of a metaphor for life sometimes, doesn't it? That we think we're doing okay, we think we're able to do this kind of in our own strength, and we're looking pretty good, and then the misstep happens. And sometimes it just comes on us without even thinking, sometimes it's a little more calculated, but we step out of line with following our Lord, and we get soiled. So this relates to Peter. So let me tell you Peter's story. We, we've been through, uh, you've been through the Gospel of John together. Last week, we got to celebrate uh, the events of the cross and then the incredible events of the resurrection. 
And now in this chapter, in John 21, uh, we're beyond the resurrection, the first appearances, and uh, we're getting into the final stories that John is recording for us in his gospel. So Peter's story, uh, he was there in the upper room on that first resurrection Sunday. He was among the disciples in that upper room. Uh, He heard with his own ears. He heard Jesus say, peace be with you. In case they missed it, he said it again, peace be with you. And then he said to them, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And then he felt the breath of Jesus as he breathed into that group and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It was a sign and token of that great day of Pentecost when the Spirit was going to be poured out and empowering all of Jesus' people. And he experienced all of that in that upper room. But I think in that moment, that moment of sheer delight and excitement and being in the Lord's presence, I think something lumped in Peter's stomach. He was there again at Galilee. Uh, Jesus had told his disciples uh, that uh, he would meet them there. They could meet him there. And so Peter was there along with six of his other buddies, six of the other disciples. And since they were there, they did what came naturally. They went fishing. Uh, They caught nothing. They'd been out all night. And in the early light of dawn, there was a stranger on the far shore. And uh, the, the stranger shouted out to them and said, Hey, friends, haven't you caught anything? And in the boat, they're thinking, How do you know? And they shout back, No. And then the reply comes from that far shore. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll catch something. And so they did. And they did. They caught something. In fact, a massive amount of fish. Later, they they pulled them all out and counted them. One, two, three, four, five. All up to 153 fish just in that one shot. They'd caught nothing all night. And now they've got this massive uh, undertaking of fish that are coming into the boat. And John, who's in the boat, standing next to Peter, he says, it's the Lord. It's Jesus. You see, he realized because it was just all too familiar. The same thing had happened before on this very same lake. Maybe at this very same spot, we don't know. It was in Peter's fishing boat, Peter and Andrew together at that point. They'd fished fruitlessly all night, as you'll remember. And in the morning, at the command of Jesus, they put the net into the water, and this massive amount of fish got caught immediately. And looking at all those fish now in the boat, John gets it. It's Jesus, he says. And the full story would have come flooding back at that moment because it was a story that was all about the beginning of their adventure with Jesus himself. And right at the beginning, he told them where to put their nets, communicated that he knew where the fish were, communicated that he knew how to get fish and net connected. And they caught such a huge amount of fish that... Peter and Andrew, or Peter and Andrew in their boat, uh, were about to be swamped, and they yell out to James and John to come and help them, and both boats almost get swamped, so many fish. And Jesus that day had given them their calling. He'd said, I'm going to make you fishers of people. And it would have all come flooding back in that moment, in the boat now. And John gets it, and he says, it's Jesus And Peter hears it, and here's the the weirdest part of the story. 
Peter, who's stripped down for fishing so he doesn't get his clothes all soiled, puts all his clothes back on and jumps into the lake and goes as quickly as he can to the shore because he wants to see Jesus. He's eager. He's excited. But I think at the same time, something lumped in his stomach. And now he's wet and cold. And he's standing by the cold fi- coal fire there that Jesus has lit. Uh, he's hungry. He loves the smell of uh, grilled fish. But more importantly, he's pressing close to get warm because he's cold and wet. And then he really remembers. And then something really lumps in his stomach. Because the last time that he had warmed himself by a coal fire had been on the night when Jesus was betrayed and when he was arrested and put on trial. And Peter had been in the courtyard of the high priest's uh, house uh, being as brave as he possibly could to get as close as he possibly could to his arrested master. He was warming himself by the fire that night and a little servant girl looked at him and did a double take and looked again. And then she spoke out loud and she said, Hey! You were one of Jesus' followers too, weren't you? And Peter, I think without even thinking, just gut response, swears up and down and curses and said, I've never even met the man. And then he was accused again. And he cursed and swore up and down and lied again. And then a third time at the fire that night, and he did the very same. And then the rooster crowed. And Peter, in anguish, remembered that Jesus had said, this is exactly what's going to happen. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And so at the fire now on the beach, early on this particular morning, I think everything would have come flooding back. And standing there with Jesus, I think something lumped in Peter's stomach. You see, he knew that he'd been called into Jesus' own mission As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Absolutely amazing. He knew that right from the start, the Lord had called him to engage in kingdom ministry, to be catching people alive into the nets of the kingdom for their own salvation. Amazing. But he had failed the master grievously, horrifically, painfully, shamedly. And that event would have created an emotionally unscalable wall in his experience with Jesus had it not been dealt with. I've got to say I love this story. It's an emotionally powerful story of uh, Peter's own experience, and we get to watch the passionate, caring, loving, forgiving, gracious, restoring love of Jesus for him. But more than that, it becomes a story of restoration possible for me and for you. So have you ever been there? I'm assuming you have, because I certainly have. So how does restoration happen? What does it look like? What's the process? So I'm going to steal from uh, a guy who's written a commentary. His name was Bruce Milne. Bruce was the senior pastor at First Baptist, just downtown uh, for many years. And he deals with this passage incredibly well, and he has three categories uh, of what restoration involves. And so let me give them to you. Here's the first one. 
It's a barrier to be removed. The barrier of Peter's immense, immense failure had to be removed. I've got to say, I am so glad that his failure was so spectacular and so grievous because it actually means there's hope for us too. So have you ever been there? Ever been there when your uh, mind starts heading in the direction of lust and you just kind of stew on it and you kind of reflect on it and let it take you somewhere that the Lord would not take you? You ever been there? I have. Ever been there when um, the memory of something that someone did to you, some offense that was incredibly hurtful, incredibly impactful, that that event comes to mind and you stew on it and you kind of pick the scab off it again and reflect on all that they did and how horrific it was and how terrible it was, and you set aside the calling to forgiveness that the Lord calls you into, and you reflect on that event and feel it again. I've been there. Ever been there when you um, intended to have the Lord's grace and had the Lord's uh, calmness and peace to deal with a tense situation? And then you get your buttons pushed and you speak sharply and angrily in a way that you never intended to, outside of grace. And you end up feeling shamed and cowed. I've been there. And so Peter was there with his own issues and we come with our own issues, our own stories. And at different points, we get completely soiled. And we come to the fire, and Peter was at the fire. And Jesus turns to Simon Peter, and he says to him this. He says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Now, it catches Peter completely off guard. He'd not expected this at that moment. He's just trying to get dry. He's trying to get warm. He's pressed into the fire. Now Jesus asks this question. And perhaps he's not even quite sure what it is that Jesus is asking. What do you mean, Lord? Do you truly love me more than these? What are these? Are you saying, are you more important to me than these fishing buddies of mine, John, James, Andrew, Nathaniel, Thomas, and the rest? Or is Jesus saying, do you love me more than these fish, this huge catch that you've just got, this huge haul of productivity that taps into your life's career, Peter, and your livelihood? Is that what Jesus is asking? Or is he asking, and I think this is it, is he reminding Peter of his boast on the night before the cross when Peter said, that he would actually love Jesus better than anyone else. Even if all the rest desert you, I will not. I will love you more than these. That he'd stick with Jesus. He'd love love him better than all the rest. And then almost immediately after, at the fire, three times over, twice to a little servant girl, he swore up and down that he didn't even know Jesus In effect, he swore up and down that he didn't love Jesus. And now Jesus is asking, do you truly 
love me more than these. It's interesting, uh, Peter in his response doesn't pick up on the false boast at all. He doesn't pick up on the comparison. He just simply, purely, contritely, humbly says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He affirms his love, just straight and simple, no boast. And so sometimes when I've failed, when I've fallen in word and action and thought, this is about all I can say. Lord, I love you. You know that I do. And then Jesus says again, a second time. He says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then a third time he says, Simon, let's put the third time up there, son of John, do you love me? Do you notice it's getting a little bit shorter and shorter and more contained each time? And interestingly enough, Jesus calls Peter by his given name, Simon, rather than the nickname that Jesus himself had given him, which was Peter, which means rock. Because the issue is that Simon has not been a rock. And Jesus speaks to him right in the midst of his unrock-like experience, and he puts his finger on his failing. Do you, the unrock-like one, love me? I'm so glad that Jesus sees Peter for who he is. I'm so glad that Jesus sees me for who I am. And further, Jesus asks the same question three times over. It gets awkward, it gets uncomfortable. In fact, the last time we're told that Peter is hurt by it, he protests strongly, he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus meets him right in that unrock-like place. It's as if Jesus meets him right in the awful discomfort of his three times over denial at the fire that night. And it's as if Jesus himself is actually pulling the sting out of each and every one of them. And he's doing it publicly. The denial was public, and now he does the sting pulling publicly in the presence of Peter's buddies. Restoration. Now, there are a number of commentators, actually, if you look at the commentaries, who will tell you that uh, in this conversation, there are actually two different Greek words that are being used for the word love. Uh, in Greek, the, the verb agapao or the, the verb phileo. Phileo has to do with um, friendship love. Agapao is the word agape, which gets used for the unconditional love of God for us. And uh, some of the commentators will see great significance in the shifting back and forth between these two words. But the fact is that John, in his gospel, uses both of these words, and he uses them interchangeably. Uh, John, it seems, actually just likes a variety of words. And he uses these two words with the very same meaning. And so here in John 21, we're not to find hidden meaning in the shifts back and forth between the words. Uh, Jesus is just simply saying to Peter three times over, do you love me? Plain and simple. He's eliciting Peter's response three times over, as uncomfortable as it is, as awkward as it is, as public as it is, so that the others can hear. And in so doing, Jesus 
pulls down the barrier. It's the first step of restoration. So I think in all of this, there were probably two pictures that went through Peter's mind, uh, if not then, at least later. Two pictures from the very night before the cross uh, that come, would have come home to Peter in a fresh way. And the first has to do uh, with the vine and the branches. And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. And Peter had been so cocky and so self-sure He thought he could do it all. He could carry the tray all by himself and not miss his footing. All in his own strength and all in his own determination. But a branch that gets cut off from the vine doesn't have any hope. It's not going to have any fruit. It's going to wither. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And Peter now knows that that's true. And the second picture, I think, goes back to the foot washing. Uh, And Jesus, with Peter's feet in hand, uh, looks Peter in the eye and says, unless I wash you, you can have no part with me. And now Peter, in this conversation with Jesus, at this fire on this beach, is having the dirt washed away. The barrier is getting removed. And Jesus does it, plain and simple. And so in restoration, the issue has to be confronted. It has to be dealt with. It needs to be cleaned up, and the barrier needs to be removed. But that's not all. Restoration also involves a responsibility to be accepted. The barrier's got to be removed, but then you've got to accept the responsibility. It's not just that Peter gets cleaned up. It's that he gets reestablished in his calling. See, three times over, Jesus calls Peter into mission, and he says this, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. I love this. Uh, Jesus had said to all of his disciples in that upper room on that first resurrection day, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And now specifically, he puts this mantle back on Peter. The one who has failed him so grievously and has now been restored, and he says, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. Enter into the work fully and completely that I have given you, with no reservation, with no reserve, with no holding back. The barriers removed, accept the responsibility, step into the kingdom work that I've called you to. And the Lord's forgiveness clears the way. So there's a a great uh, quote that I discovered from a woman named Rita Snowden. Uh, She was a New Zealand uh, devotional writer of the last century, and she said this. You ask me what forgiveness means. It is the wonder of being trusted again by God in the place where I disgraced him. You ask me what forgiveness means. It is the wonder of being trusted again by God in the place where I disgraced him. That's Peter. That's you. That's me. Um, This past week, I was at the Abbotsford City prayer breakfast, 
and uh, hundreds of us gathered in a hotel banquet room. We had a very nice breakfast, and we prayed for the mayor, for the counselors, for uh, chief of police, chief of uh, fire chief, uh, first responders, uh, the school board. And then we uh, listened, as uh, happens each year, uh, to uh, a talk, a speech given by somebody invited that day. And the guy that was invited that day was a guy from Vancouver. His name is Aaron White. I don't know if any of you have encountered him. Uh, he lives in the downtown east side with his wife and kids, who are now grown, but they grew up there in the downtown east side. They've been living there, I think, 18 or 19 years. And uh, Aaron uh, seeks to be a presence of the kingdom of God in that very hard place. And he uh, shared with us incredible challenges and um, uh, gripping realities of the opioid crisis that's going on, how it's impacted that community, and how horrific it is, and, and what he's seen. But he also gave us some glimpses of, of hope and inspiration. And he told us that uh, a while back, when the BC government uh, made a declaration that opioid addicts do not recover, he said many of his friends were incensed and incredibly angry because they were recovered addicts. They said, what about us? One, he told us, was prostituted and an addict, probably eight or 10 years ago. But she now serves as a pastor and a care worker in the downtown east side. And she goes on rounds every day and she checks into tents and in back alleys where she knows people are to see if they're still alive. And over the last six to eight years, Aaron said, she has been responsible for 65 people being restored to life. There's a woman who was broken and addicted, but the barrier was removed, and she received the responsibility of the kingdom calling, and she's been used wonderfully by the Lord. And he told us the story of another guy who, again, about a decade back, was an addict on the street, uh, no hope, but was touched by Jesus and has stepped into recovery. And he now actually runs four recovery houses in the downtown east side. He's being used in the kingdom. The barrier's been removed. He's been restored. Kingdom purpose has been put into his hands. And so restoration means a barrier needs to be removed. It also means... A responsibility needs to be accepted. And thirdly, it means a cross needs to be carried. So Jesus then says this to Peter. He says, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter, it's going to cost you to follow me, Jesus is saying. It's going to cost you what you were trying to avoid at the coal fire in the high priest's house uh, that night. It's going to cost you what you were trying to avoid behind locked doors in the upper room in Jerusalem. It's going to cost you. And ultimately, tradition tells us whether it's um, exactly right or not, but it tells us that Peter actually indeed did pay 
with his life by being crucified himself. The tradition says that he felt he was not worthy to be crucified, to be killed in the same way Jesus was, so requested that he would be crucified upside down. But along the way, before he got to that moment, it cost him too. Imprisonment, beatings, hardship. And it cost him the ongoing humility of submitting to the process of restoration again and again and again, as he needed it. For presumably, he, like me, like you, needed it more than once. We know of at least one occasion when the Apostle Paul rebuked Peter because he was not living in the full freedom of the gospel. He was making a distinction between Jew and Gentile. He was denying the practical reality of Christ's work in everyone's life. And Paul rebuked him, and presumably Peter repented again, came back to his Lord again for washing, took up his calling again, and followed, counting the cost. For ultimately, restoration is all about walking with Jesus, following him in his way. So it involves a barrier to be removed. It involves a calling, a responsibility to be received and accepted. And it involves carrying our cross. So this is a story for me. It's a story for us. And there is not a single one of us, I think, who is strong enough or who is clean enough or who is unsoiled enough in our own right. And if we've come to faith in Jesus, then we know that this is our story. We know that uh, we were not clean in our own right. We were soiled. We'd misstepped often. The clothes we thought were white, or at least white enough, were revealed as being desperately soiled. And so we came to Jesus and we got washed clean. But the fact is that the story does not end at conversion, does it? We need this story again and again the story of restoration. And it may in fact be that some of us here this morning are right in the throes of that. And we're just like Peter at the fire that morning on the beach and there's something lumping in our stomach. And we know the Lord loves us and we know that he's put a calling on our lives, but we also know the missteps that we've had and the things that are lingering that are uh, like soiled clothes, bright and messy. And we may feel like we've been disqualified But the story Peter tells us, it's not the case. Jesus died for us. He went to the cross to take it all on himself, all of our dirty clothing, and to replace it with the clothes of his righteousness. He removes the barrier, and he gives us kingdom calling in his purposes. And he has a cross to carry, but he'll give us strength in the midst of it. And so if something is lumping in your stomach this morning, meet Jesus again at the fire. Let him remove the barrier. Let him recommission you in the things he's called you to. Let's pray, shall we? And I want to give you a moment as we pray to just be quiet on your own in the Lord's presence. And you speak to him about whatever he's put on your mind this morning in relation to Peter's story. And if you need to look him in the eye, as it were, and just say, oh, Lord, would you please forgive me? I love you. Thank you for dying.
wash me clean again. Then do that. And so, dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that when you went to the cross, and we celebrated that just a week ago, when you went to the cross, you took on yourself all of our sin. Nothing is left out of all. And when you took Peter's feet in hand and washed them, you said, unless I wash you, you can have no part with me. And the one who has had a bath only needs to have his feet cleaned to be all clean. And thank you that you have given us the bath, in a sense, by uh, taking all of our wrongdoing on yourself. But there are moments along the way where we need to get cleaned up on our feet. We need our clothes refreshed. And Lord, thank you that you provide this. And then, Lord, would you please, by your Spirit, call us fresh into deeper kingdom engagement, to take up our cross and follow you. We pray it, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. So it's incredibly fitting that we get to come and take part in bread and wine now. Um, On the night before Jesus uh, was betrayed, on the night he was betrayed, and the night before he went to the cross, uh, he knew what was happening, but the disciples didn't. And they were around the table that night celebrating, as they did every year, the, the Passover meal, the celebration where they looked back to the time when God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. And Jesus took some of the elements from that meal, the unleavened bread, one of the cups of wine, and he invested it with new meaning. And in essence, I think what he was saying was that incredibly great deliverance that God worked way back then, I'm going to work it now in your life. And this bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, it's given for you. Take and eat. And this cup which I think in the ordinary order of things at the Passover meal was known as the cup of redemption, he said, this now is the new covenant in my blood. Take it and drink. And the disciples around that table eating the, eating the, the bread and drinking the cup must have been thinking, what? Is he, is he talking about dying? And later they knew. And later they looked back and they remembered that Jesus did it on purpose and he did it for them. And he did it for us. And this is the hope that we have for restoration. So I want to invite you to take part in bread and wine. If you know Jesus as your Savior, the one who rescues you, the one who um, allows you to be clean in his presence. And if never before, if you've never said yes to Jesus, then I invite you to consider saying yes to him now. And make it tangible by taking the bread, knowing what it is. It's his death for you to wash you clean. And taking the cup, and it's his life's blood poured out for you, and you receive it. 
So I welcome you to, to take part. I'd like to invite those that are serving to come. And I'm going to say a prayer of thanksgiving for uh, both uh, the bread and the cup. Uh, and then I'm going to invite you by rows to come around the outside and to receive. Uh, if you need gluten-free option, it will be there for you. And um, so let's join together in praying and giving thanks. Let's pray. So, dear Lord Jesus, we thank you. Is, uh, over this last week, we have reflected on the events of Good Friday and the events of Resurrection Sunday. And we thank you now that all of that was for us, that you died to wash us clean and to give us new life. And we praise you and thank you. And joyfully, we take part now in the bread and the cup again and give you thanks for the redemption that you've won for us. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.